start a new series today. Um, we're going to dismiss Bridge Kids, so kids, thanks for joining us. And as we start a new series, one of the important things, now I know kids are leaving, but one of the important things is that you follow along in the scriptures yourself. And so you're going to need a Bible of your own, either one that you brought or on your phone, or we have Bibles. So I'm going to ask the ushers to come in with Bibles. Uh, if you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. I hope you got more than three, because yeah, there's, we need a couple. Who else needs a Bible? Yep, there's one back there. There's one back there, so you're going to need more than three. Um, so I use a lot of scripture, but when it, I'm doing a book study, so when I do a book study, I don't put that up on the screen. Uh, that I want you to follow in the text. So that's going to be important. And if you're new to the Bible, just go to the table of contents. We're looking up the book of 1 John, and by the way, that is found on page 855. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, 1 John chapter 1. Now, who else needed a Bible? I don't think we, we still have Bibles out there. A couple more people? Sorry about that. Comedian Kathy Landman once said, all religions are the same. All religions are the same. Religion is basic, basically guilt with different holidays. That's pretty funny. It's just basically guilt with different holidays. At least it's really funny on the surface. Um, but if you examine world religions and do just a little research, you can see that it's totally false. And when you just think about Christianity, and I'm not going to examine all the world religions this morning, that's another time. But uh, if you examine Christianity... Jesus Christ is not like any other religious figure in history. Christianity is not like any other world religion. Christianity is not focused on guilt, but the removal of guilt. Um, Jesus is God's plan to deal with true moral guilt before a holy God, because there is true moral guilt. Now, in our culture today, we struggle with psychological guilt and false guilt and all kinds of ways we've been guilted. But there is true moral guilt before a holy God when we have violated uh, his nature and his instructions. It is Jesus who redeemed us from true moral guilt. He redeemed us. He paid the price for us. He paid the penalty of our sin. It is Jesus who offers genuine forgiveness and per, uh, provision to live every day in a way that honors God. It's not about doing it in our own strength. It's about doing it in the provision, in the strength that God provides for us. So we're starting a new series, and it's entitled Family Resemblance. Now, if you think about your own family, your family of origin... Do you resemble anybody else in your family of origin? Like, do you, have any, do you resemble your mom or your dad a little bit? 
Do you have brothers or sisters or even maybe grandparents that you resemble a little bit? Um, I was adopted, so I really have no clue about my biological family. I would guess they may look something like me. I don't know. Um, I have a son that resembles me a little bit, but he also resembles his mother. Um, Back, some of you know that back in the day, I used to shave my head, and he shaves his head. And uh, people see us both, and they say, Dango, that's what you're going to look like when you're old. And um, he has red hair. He gets that from Sue. All of our kids have freckles. They get that from both of us. I have two daughters. They have some resemblances to me. All my kids got part of my nose. That's not probably good. Um, they may resemble me in other ways that they don't appreciate. I don't know. Um, they have some great qualities from Sue. Um, and that's just appearance, physical appearance. Now, if you are a Christ follower, uh, you've come to faith in Jesus you too are to have a family resemblance because um, if you've been born of God, if you've been born again, if you've been given a spiritual birth and now have a spiritual nature, you are in God's family. Uh, the Bible says you're children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And there should be some family resemblance. Um, as we come to 1 John... Uh, there's a really key term that John is going to carry out throughout the book, and he starts right out with it. And, and I'm just going to start with the, the term before we even get to the text. And the term is fellowship. And it's, it's not a term that we use a lot today in our culture, and it's a very broad term. Um, in the 20th century, we said it was coffee and donuts. Um, and I see it's, it was a joke in the 20th century, and it's, a, it's still not funny. But the idea is that people came to church and they just hung out and they, they shot the air with coffee and donuts. Now, today the church can't afford donuts, so it's simpler today than it used to be. But fellowship uh, is a key term, and it just means sharing. It's about sharing the life. Now, technically here, it's specifically sharing the life of Jesus the spiritual relationship, the spiritual nature of being a Christ follower and sharing that life together. There's all kinds of ways we share. We share uh, through prayer, during a time of prayer. That's sharing. We, when, we, when we are learning from God's Word, the Holy Spirit is working through us, helping us understand, helping me clarify, because I need a whole lot of help. And... Uh, there is a fellowship around the word. There's a fellowship when we bear one another's burdens and we listen and we care for each other. There's fellowship when we serve one another. It's a very broad term, but it's a very important term in the concept of Christianity. Now, we have a, a word today that we talk about a lot, and it's community. And it's, community is a buzzword. It's a cool word that's used for all kinds of things. And we had community. We had an experience together. We shared something important. And that's all good. But 
There's, here it's a social, religious, occupational, or other group sharing common characteristics or interests that are perceived as distinct from the larger society. There's a sense that uh, during the summer, I ride a motorcycle with a group. It's called HOG. It means Harley Owners Group. And uh, you know what? We have community because we have a love for riding. And there's all kinds of personalities in that group. There's all kinds of values in the group. But what we have in common is that one thing, the love for riding. And we share experiences together. That's a kind of community. That is not a biblical community. Um, a, bi a biblical community is, is going to be about sharing the life of Jesus. We have a core value uh, at the bridge. And we say it this way. Core value. There we go. Community is about sharing the life of Jesus Christ with one another. This happens best in small groups. Um, we have a core value for community. Now, I'm going to use the word fellowship instead of community because that's exactly what the text uses here today. Uh, let's look at 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. And the Apostle John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So uh, if, you, if you have an outline, I uh, encourage you to follow along. The first uh, main point is that true fellowship can only be found in our relationship with God. True fellowship can only be found with our relationship with God. We begin in uh, verses 1 and 2, um, and we see that the, the author here has apostolic authority as an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. And, and that's what he's talking about. The, the author is the Apostle John. His name is not mentioned in this book. Uh, we understand it because it's been passed down to us from the very first, uh, actually very early second century. Disciple of John uh, passes this on to us. And uh, it's very clear that the, this book, 1 John, is very similar to the Gospel of John. As we understand it, the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, which is about the life of Jesus, and then he wrote three letters, we sometimes call epistles, three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and then they, he wrote the very last book of the Bible, the Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which brings a close to... Uh, human history as we understand it. So John here has apostolic authority. He has been an eyewitness. Um, he has been with Jesus. He has hung out. He's talked with Jesus. He's heard Jesus teach. 
He's seen Jesus perform miracles. He saw Jesus crucified. He was there when Jesus rose from the dead, and he was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. John is not John the Baptist. I always want to clarify that. John the Baptist is the one who baptized Jesus, and he was beheaded by Herod. Short life. This is John the Apostle. He was one of the 12 disciples, one of the original. He has a brother named James in the Bible. James was one of the 12 disciples, and he was also the son of Zebedee. Um, John outlived, as we understand, all of the other apostles. Uh, He had over a 60-plus year of ministry as a full-time missionary, teacher, pastor, evangelist, apostle. Over a 60-year ministry after Jesus died and returned to heaven. So 1 John was likely written as a letter around 90 A.D. So John is going to die around 95 A.D., So this may be around 90 A.D. It's late in the first century. So, verse 1, that was which from the beginning is a reference to Jesus. And if you remember John 1.1, I didn't put this on the screen, but John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. John uses a technical word. One of the interesting things about John is he's a very simple writer. He uses very simple language. He's not complicated like the Apostle Paul. He, he writes about light and darkness and good and evil. It's really simple. Very profound theological ideas, as you will see. That was which from the beginning, a reference to Jesus, which we have heard. We heard, we heard him face to face. We've seen, we proclaim concerning the word of life. There it is, same concept Jesus as the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. That's John 1.14. And the way, I, the way I see John here is, John is not wanting to sound too familiar about his relationship with Jesus. John wants to be very humble as he talks about Jesus and understanding the the ultimate person that Jesus was. And so he's going to use terminology. Um, This this term, the word, is a word uh, that that was used in the ancient world, and it it refers to the first cause, the the first source, the creator of all things, the origin of the universe. John understands that's Jesus. He's the creator God. And and so John makes this empirical truth claim about Jesus as an eyewitness. We, you know, this is so, at least 20th century. I don't know if we say it's 21st century because we we come up with knowledge all kinds of ways. But empirically, scientifically, we, we look at the facts. What can we see? What can we hear? What can we touch? What can we smell? John doesn't mention that, but I'm sure he did. He was there. Firsthand, he 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 is an authority. And by the way, to be an apostle, you had to be with Jesus from the beginning until he returned to heaven. That was one of the qualifications. Verse two: the the life appeared. We've seen 
We've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The life appeared. Does that sound a little bit like Titus and referring to the epiphany, the appearance, the visitation of God to the earth? We also call it the incarnation. Jesus appeared. He was born of a virgin. He lived a life on earth, a human life. He had a public ministry of about three years, and then he was crucified, and, and then he, he died, he was buried, and he raised, was raised again. We had this special time, John says. This life appeared. Jesus said this in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's very exclusive. It separates Christianity from all other religions. It's very exclusive. There is no other way, Jesus said, other than through him. No other way to the Father. No other way to God. No other way to have a relationship. No other way to be a part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or heaven. It's exclusive, but it's also inclusive because Jesus' invitation is to all people. He died for all people. And um, he, he invites them to come to God through him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. In verses 3 and 4, the purpose of this proclamation of Jesus is to reach out and to offer true fellowship. True fellowship. Christianity, as you know, is not just a religion. You know, religion is about uh, humans trying to be good enough, trying to improve themselves so that uh, they might be acceptable to God. Am I good enough yet, God? I'm going to keep working on these, and hopefully you'll see that I'm good enough, and maybe one day you'll accept me into heaven. That's religion. And, and that, you know, what is it? is really a description of all world religions, except Christianity is different if you understand it, and that is it's God reaching down to us. When he sent his son Jesus, we can't improve ourselves. We have to accept what God has offered for us and receive forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. And then God begins to enable us to live for him and to live in a way that honors him. So John says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. There's that word fellowship, that sharing, so that you may have this experience with us, so you may have this relationship with us. Um, John wants his audience to understand his purpose. He shared a life with Jesus for three years in the flesh. And now 60 years with Jesus in heaven and John on earth, but he is still well connected to Jesus. He's connected spiritually. And he's saying, I'm telling you this so that you can have fellowship with us. And sometimes the nature of Christianity, and it was in the first century, is that people get scattered and spread out and disconnected 
And John is helping them understand that the church and the role of the church and the body of Christ and that there, there are relationships that God has designed and those relationships uh, happen through this genuine fellowship, this true fellowship. It's a connection. It's a spiritual connection with God. Um, and he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. He clarifies the nature of the relationship. It's with the Father, direct relationship with the Father spiritually, direct relationship with Jesus spiritually. Now later in the book, we're gonna, John is going to mention the Spirit. All are mentioned, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. All part of this fellowship. And he says, we write this to make our joy complete. Spiritual joy. A real, genuine experience for a Christ follower walking with Christ and seeing uh, God's work. Uh, seeing God's people fulfill God's work. Seeing God's people obey. See what, seeing God's people do what they were designed to do. Uh, the, the, the Apostle Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Philippians chapter 1. He says, Therefore, if, any, uh, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... And so Paul is really writing about some of the same things, but Paul's theology is actually spelled out quite a bit more than the Apostle John's in, in what he's talking about. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... So, Christ follower... Uh, Assuming you've placed your faith in Christ, you have been united with Christ. He, he, Jesus is the head. Uh, we are the body. If you've, if you've experienced any encouragement, if any comfort from his love, we sang about that this morning, oh, how he loves us. If you've received any comfort from this love, if any common sharing, there's that word fellowship in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion from God, then make my joy complete. Paul says, this would bring me great joy to see God at work in your life by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. And he's talking about a spiritual unity. Okay. Stay with me, folks. Here we go. Uh, the true fellowship can only be found in our relationship with God. That's verses 1 through 4. Now we're going to come to verses 5 through 10. Second major point and the only other major point. True fellowship can only happen when we walk in the light. Now, this is going to get a little more personal, okay? True fellowship can only happen when we walk in the light. Uh, verse 5, God is, is the total opposite of darkness. And this is my way of saying God is light, okay? He's the total opposite. He says in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him, meaning Jesus, and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. And I confess, that's a hard concept uh, to explain, hard to understand. It's easier to think of that God is light as what he's not. He's not darkness. God, we know that God is holy. We know that God is true and truthful. We know that God is righteous. 
And there's no darkness in him. There's no evil, no evil intent, no self-centered motives, no cover-up, no deception, only truth from God. That is his nature. God is light. God exposes darkness. Light exposes darkness. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. There is no darkness in him. No self-centered motivation. No evil intent. He is a God of truth. And he says, whoever follows me, when we're following Jesus, we're in the light, we're not in the darkness. When we slip off the path, when we go our own way, we slip into darkness, out of the light. But if we follow Jesus, we will have the light of life. We will have light on our path. We'll be able to walk in a way that honors God, in a way that's pleasing to God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Matthew 5, 14, another well-known passage, Jesus said, uh, you are the light of the world. So Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, and then he will look at his disciples and say, you heard me say I was the light of the world. I want you to know that you are the light of the world. And it's it's not the same concept of Jesus The idea here is we are a reflection of the light. When we walk in the light, we are a reflection. We are not the light in the sense that Jesus is essentially. We are a reflection created in the image of God. And we are light and we shine as light when we follow him. And he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that suggests that our lives should, our lives should somehow be attractive and uh, point people to God and, and have them uh, be curious about uh, how we live and how we make choices and why we do what we do. And, but not in a negative way, but in an attractive way that attracts people to God. Next, John gets more personal in verse 6. He says... And here's what I've written. Living a double life with God is a lie and destroys fellowship with God. Living a double life with God is a lie. He says in verse 6, If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, uh, we lie and do not live out the truth. If we claim to be Christians, if we claim to be genuine Christ followers. And we pursue our own lifestyle. We pursue, um, we avoid God's instructions. We deny God's instructions. We have better ideas than how God wants us to live. He says, we lie and do not live out the truth. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, picks up on this concept of light and darkness. 
The Apostle Paul writes, Follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children. Oh, how he loves us. And walk in the way of love. Now, one of the things that happens I see in our culture is that we decide what love should be and how God should do love. And we don't see how God has promised his love, his sacrificial love. But he also has responsibilities for us to live in a way that's consistent with his love. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Next slide. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. God has a very high view of sexuality. God is the one who designed human sexuality. He created all the body parts. He, he designed our desires and passions. And they are for good. And yet he, just, he put some boundaries on them. And he said, I want this for that relationship between a husband and wife when they commit their lives to, to one another. And it's not just a private thing. It's a societal thing recognized by governments societies all over the world since the beginning of time. And within the context of that husband and wife relationship, God wants husbands and wives to enjoy this relationship. It's, it's a very important part of the marriage relationship. But God says, outside of that, you're creating your own rules. He calls it sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornea. It's outside. It doesn't honor God. That would include uh, a partner having sexual relationship with somebody not their mate. That would include pornography. Jesus called it lust, the idea of um, just thinking it through and having ideas outside of the marriage relationship is pornea, sexual immorality. Um, he says, there must not be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. That's certainly where pornography would fall in this idea of impure thoughts. Um, a question about application here. John is personal. Is that something you struggle with, the sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship? You know the answer to that. And he, and he goes on, and here's the list, and he says, or of greed, as it relates to our material possessions and wanting more and more uh, of stuff and unable to be content with what we have. God provides for us. Are we okay with how God provides for us, or do we need more and more to be happy. And he goes on to say, nor should there be obscenity. Uh, this is about our speech. Uh, vulgarity. Nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk, sloppy speech, coarse joking, which uh, are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. 
Sometimes jokes don't really fit in with a Christ follower's way of thinking. Uh, Our speech is very important as a Christ follower. And then he says, but rather thanksgiving. Are you a thankful person? Because thanksgiving is a normal response of a Christ follower. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, just jumping the text a little bit, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And so he's talking about the life of a Christ follower. Some things get out of bounds. Some things are... uh, He says, don't get drunk on wine. Now, you know, alcohol was a very important beverage in the first century. It happens to be a part of our culture as well. The issue... And we have, a, we have it way more than just alcohol. We have substance abuse. The issue is control. The issue is uh, being intoxicated versus being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's about being controlled. It's about being drunk, as, as, as Paul uses it here. In, uh, back to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, he says, Once... For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Something's changed. When they came to faith in Christ, they left the sphere of darkness, and now they became a part of the sphere of light in the Lord, in Christ. Then he says, live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light, this is something God is light. Here's something we can learn about the fruit of the light. It consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Darkness, the opposites here, would, would be the opposite of good, which would be bad or evil, unrighteousness, and lies or deception. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruit, fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Verse 7, walking in the light that is following Christ brings true fellowship with God and with one another. And this is where he has been going. Verse 7, this is real fellowship. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Walking in the light is about obedience to Christ, following Christ by faith. When we follow Christ, we are walking in the light. We are walking in a spiritual purity. Uh, We have been cleansed. We are spiritually clean when we're walking in the light. Verse 8, denying our own sin is self-deceptive and false. This is getting even more personal. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be perfect, I don't think there's probably many today who say they are perfect. Maybe a few. We have a lot of people trying to be perfect. Um, But what I see happens in Christianity is that, yeah, we're willing to admit some of our sin. And some of it that's obvious and that everybody else knows about, we're quite comfortable to talk about that. But if we have secret sin, we're not comfortable to talk about that. And we act as if it doesn't really exist. It's not me. 
and sometimes we take the role of, I'm my own judge. doesn't really make any difference what God thinks about this. I disagree with him. I think I ought to be able to do this. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. The Apostle Paul has some very strong words for us. He says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And so he's reminding them of God's grace. He's reminding them, oh, how God loves us. He says, do you remember that? How patient God is with us. How he's been working in our lives to bring us to an understanding that Jesus died for us. And it's intended to lead us to repentance. Repentance is about change. So, I told my story many times. Um, First years into my 20s, I was walking in the darkness. I did not know Jesus. I didn't care. I didn't believe in God. I didn't want to believe in God. Then I had an encounter with God. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And it changed everything. I wanted to change. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to please God. It wasn't hard. I didn't have to, you know, buck up and really try harder. I just wanted to do these things. I wanted to learn to be generous. I wanted to be kinder. I wanted to be a better husband. And it was about turning to following God, turning to God and learning to follow him. That's repentance. That's conversion. But you know what? I don't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Sometimes I get off the course. Sometimes I get a little sloppy. I need to get back on the course. I need to repent and turn back so I can continue my walk. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. God has been so patient, he's so kind, and he wants us to be able to repent, to turn to him when we get out of line. Because sometimes we get sloppy, we get off the course, and there is danger when we're off the course. Next next slide. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Next slide. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and danger. Having a double life is not an option for a Christ follower. But we so often want to try it, where we can do a little bit of both, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of my own thing. And God is going to hold us all accountable. All of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Now, 
It's possible that there are people who hang out at church who aren't really a Christ follower and never really did become born again. That's possible. It's also possible that we have real genuine Christ followers who are just really sloppy and somehow think that having a secret life really doesn't make any difference as long as nobody uh, finds out about it. Lastly, dishonesty before God is the act of rejecting God. That's really strong words. Dishonesty before God is an act of rejecting God. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And again, I think a lot of us are willing to claim our sin partially. And some of us don't want to deal with private sins that nobody else knows about. And my question is, are we totally honest with God? Are we brutally honest with God about our own lives? Or do we gloss over our weaknesses and our propensities? If we aren't real with God, we're calling him a liar. That's how he perceives it. So, God has designed his church to be in relationship with him. It's not, and here's one of those things that we've seen happen in, in sort of like modern times. We get the idea that I can have a relationship with God, with God apart from the church. God never intended that. He intended us always to be in relationship with the body of Christ, always. There was never, a, in the New Testament period, there was never such a thing as a Christian who was not a part of a church. And uh, he's designed the church to have this fellowship. He loves us. He provides for us. He's given us resources to strengthen us every day. He's given us the word of God to empower us. He's given us the Holy Spirit to enable us. Uh, he offers forgiveness. And even as a Christ follower, when I mess up, he offers me forgiveness again. Um, he offers eternal life. Whether, whether he, now think about this. He offers eternal life where there will be no more death, no more dying, no more cancer, no more pain, no more suffering, no more evil, no more sin, no more violence. He wants us to have a vibrant spiritual connection with him and with one another. Biblically, we call it fellowship. He asks us to walk in the light as he is in the light. It's about total honesty with him. Now, I know I left out 1 John 1, 9. And it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's a condition. If. If we don't, there's a problem. If we do, if we confess our sin, that means to agree with God. It means to come clean with God. It means to be totally honest with God. And again, confession, if, if I confess my sin and then I go back to doing the old things, that's not repentance. That's not following. That's just staying, you know, Sometimes I think Christians 
They make sure they are in attendance when we do communion because they somehow think that being there on that day makes it right for them to be forgiven. And then the rest of the month, they can slide back along until the next month. And that's not at all what Christianity is about. It's just about, it, we're not perfect people. I'm not, a perfect pe- I'm not a perfect person or a perfect people either. But when I, when I sin, I need to confess it to God and I need to come back and follow. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful. That's the nature of His character. He is just. He has paid the price for sin. Sin has to be paid for, and Jesus did it for us. Sin has been punished for us. If we don't turn back to him, we'll pay consequences in this life for it. There's plenty of New Testament uh, evidence for that. And so if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. He will forgive us. We can know it. It's true. It's a promise. Sometimes people don't feel forgiveness because they don't believe God. He will forgive us our sin and purify us of all unrighteousness. That's really a good place to be. And that makes it easy for a fresh start to follow Christ and to ask him to help us to be the person that he wants us to be. So as we begin the book of 1 John and as we close our time this morning, let's just take a brief time to reflect about our own lives. Are we walking in the light? Are we dabbling in the darkness? Let's bow in prayer. Just as you sit there this morning, just ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to shine on your life. Ask Him to show you if there's anything displeasing to Him. Inconsistencies, something that you covered or something you just know you need to talk to Him about. you need to deal with God about sexual immorality? Do you need to deal with God about greed? Do you need to deal with God about your speech or about being dishonest with him or with people? Maybe it's an issue with food. The Bible calls that gluttony, where food becomes the most important thing. Maybe it's anger. Anger that's carried out against others. Anger that erupts in hurtful words or violence. Or maybe it's pride, thinking that you're more important than other people, that somehow you're better or more valuable than other people. If God brings anything to your mind, just be honest with him. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to give you the strength to walk in the light. Father, I want to thank you this morning for the Apostle John's words to us that sober us 
cause us to think seriously about our own lives, to reflect. God, Christianity isn't primarily about guilt. You do use guilt to get our attention. But it's about the removal of guilt. Thank you that Jesus has paid our price, that he took our place, that he was our substitute. Thank you that he is the light of the world. May we as his followers walk in that light for Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen.